adventure of a lifetime. Here at LCM, along with our brother churches, we have taken aim at the region of Aswan, Amen. as well as the larger biblical world map. We are preparing to bend the Vulcan bow and reverse the road from Rome to Jerusalem. Chief among the elements our Holy Father is using to prepare us for this endeavor is our study of the Book of Acts, Come on, which of course is a call to action. That's right. I think you can see this evening we are working to work ourselves out of a job. Uh -huh. yeah. Come on. We've come to the place in our study where we'll begin to engage with Acts chapter 2, a favorite of Christians empowered by the Spirit of Jesus all around the world. This evening as we wrestle with the theological implications of the text and the practical realities of the early church, my father is currently on his way to Gainesville, Virginia yeah. to visit our brothers at Submission Ministries. Amen. This comes after nearly a week of sharing unified vision, fellowship, and cultivating resolve to see the nations conquered for Jesus Christ at Remnant Church. The One Association has never been more unified or stirred to action than during these times. We're pleased to tell you that as one collective body made up of many churches and people, we are just getting started. That's right. And our continued aim of replicating the example and the practices of the first century church, there are many, many more powerful testimonies to come. Amen. Church, it is exciting to see how well you have been prepared to fully engage with the material tonight. Scriptural truths regarding the validity of the tabernacle and temple service are going to come into full focus tonight and in the coming weeks. Foundational understanding of Jesus as the netzer of God are going to enable you to grasp this familiar chapter in a way that eludes most believers. Understanding the prophecies of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are going to serve you well in receiving the revelation that Peter's sermon brings to his people, Israel. Finally, you are going to see that Adonai has wasted no event in the history of his people through the Torah, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The unassailable truth is that we have received grace upon grace, Amen. from Moses all the way through the first century Pentecost event. The original promises that Adonai would establish Israel as a kingdom of priests are ongoing and never more obvious than what happens in tonight's chapter as well as the weeks to come. So that being said, let's revisit some of what we have learned thus far as we prepare to jump into our text tonight. Our first slide here is the title of the book of Acts. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So a couple major takeaways from this passage. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself, but rather always moves to exalt the Son. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. You can see those scripture references on the screen there. This is how the words of Jesus can be fulfilled in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, when Jesus said, And surely I am with you always, 
to the very end of the age. Luke was the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body on earth as he fulfilled the Great Commission. Acts could be called the actions of Jesus through his body on earth as empowered by his spirit. And simply put, Jesus is the superstar of the book of Acts. Amen. Amen. To begin with, we have learned together that the book of Acts is the fulfillment of a promise made by Jesus in Matthew 28. I will be with you always to the very end of the age of that promise. The book of Acts is very literally Jesus in action through his church as empowered by his spirit of holiness. This evening, we're not only going to see the body of Christ empowered, but also in action doing the works of the Father on earth. Amen. The story of the faithful has never been about a life empowered to teach and then act, but instead it has always been about lives empowered to do and then teach. You will remember our next slide. Not just believing, but walking. You're going to have to help me out with this one. In Genesis 5, 22, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 48, 15, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked with God. Leviticus 26, 12, Adonai promised to walk among Israel. Deuteronomy 5, 33, all Israel commanded to walk in the way. And then we have Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in that order, speaking about the kingdom of God. At least as early as Genesis 5, the faithful on earth have been described as inaction or walking with God in accordance with his commands. This concept carries through the entirety of the Bible, culminating in the words of Revelation 14, 13. They will rest from their labor their deeds will follow them. When you're reflecting on that passage, life spent walking with Adonai and acting in accordance with his commands, well, life like that will follow that man into eternity. This is because there is one singular way to follow the Lord, not many ways. And that way leads to everlasting life for those who walk in. To remember our seventh, the way slide. This comes from Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. We learned together that it was only the unbelieving. Somebody say, unbelieving. Unbelieving. Only the unbelieving community who ever considered the way a sect or a separate religion. The first century believing community understood the truth that they were a continuation of all that the law, prophets, and writings were aimed at. Furthermore, we learned together what the original source text for the term followers of the way likely was. You guys want to see the source text? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's look at Isaiah 35, walking in the way. In verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk 
in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Yeah. This prophetic message, first penned by Isaiah, was in many ways a double-edged sword affirming the early believers and calling all who saw their actions, as well as heard their teachings, to true repentance. The truth is that without a revelation of Messiah, we would all be hopelessly lost, groping about like wicked fools, unable to find the way. However, the prophet Isaiah also penned another revelation that we, along with Israel, have come to be partakers in. This slide is the way and the teacher, and I'll be reading from Isaiah 30, starting in verse 20 in the NASB. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. But your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. We are filled with joy to know that he, Israel's teacher and savior, has come. He is the one who is currently leading us along the way through his spirit of holiness. Collectively, we with Israel form his body on earth and are the manifestation of his kingdom in this present age. Additionally, we examine some common but unscriptural assertions regarding the placement and rights to the kingdom of God on earth. Look at our next slide, kingdom taken. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This statement was made to the chief priests and the Pharisees, where most present-day believers get confused, is in thinking that this statement refers to taking the kingdom from Israel. That idea is patently false and unbiblical. Yes. The custodians of the way to the kingdom were being changed from present Jewish leadership to a new Jewish leadership to the Jewish apostles. This point should be abundantly clear, and the text of Acts 1 has borne this fact out. That being said, rather than spending our efforts reviewing that concept, we would like to focus on who the kingdom was given to. Let's take our next slide on kingdom transfer. This is Luke 22, 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the kingdom of God was assigned to the 12 Jewish apostles. Amen. You should remember that this knowledge urged the remaining 11 after the defection of Judas to select God's appointed replacement. It was an absolute necessity, say necessity, necessity, that the government of God on earth was solidified with Matthias as the 12th apostle prior to our text tonight because the coming clothing and power, come on, the 12 would serve as a living witness to the life and ministry of Jesus as well as to the day that empowerment was poured out onto the body of Christ. So tonight, you will see the Jewish government of the kingdom of God, the one led by 12 Jewish apostles, expanding the kingdom to include thousands more of their Jewish brothers. 
This is most certainly the starting point to ensuring that Israel and eventually some Grafton's become the kingdom of priests that Adonai said he would form all the way back on Mount Sinai. Amen. So saints, in a day when salvation has been sold as an eternal security package, and likewise the baptism in the Holy Spirit has been considered an optional spiritual merit badge to a Christian's life, it is important for us to remember why the government of God was established in the Twelve, and why the Spirit of Jesus empowered them. This was to advance the kingdom of God on earth beginning in Jerusalem, and then into every nation under heaven. Amen. We have a slide for you. I'm going to read to you the bottom verses from Acts 1, 3. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. This is how the book of Acts opens. Acts 28, 31 is how it closes, proclaiming, the kingdom of God in teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. From beginning to end, the book of Acts is a constant proclamation of the kingdom of God that is promised to Israel. Of course, Graftons like Ittai eventually are included. But we must never forget that this kingdom was specifically promised to be possessed by Israel. You'll remember from our overview evening together that the Gospel of Luke records the phrase Kingdom of God a total of 32 times. Mm. The importance of this subject comes into view when you recognize that Luke and Acts are in fact two volumes of one contiguous work. Take a look at our next slide. The normal Greek literary scroll seldom exceeded 35 length, feet in length. Ancient authors would therefore divide a long literary work into several books, each of which could be accommodated into one scroll. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts would each have filled an ordinary papyrus roll of 31 or 32 feet in length. Doubtless, this is one of the reasons why Luke-Acts was issued in two volumes instead of one. So the author Luke began by chronicling everything Jesus began to do and teach. Among the subjects that Jesus did and then taught on was chiefly the kingdom of God. Mm. This is particularly emphasized when you consider that the phrase, the kingdom of God, shows up 35 times in only 24 chapters. Wow. Luke's second scroll, which is commonly known as the book of Acts, continues the very same theme, but this time through the body of Jesus as empowered by his spirit. Yeah. 32 times, that was my bad. So in a way that is both encouraging and a bit unnerving, the scriptural account of the apostles' own understanding of the kingdom of God demonstrates their lack of comprehension and subsequently their continued growth as well. Amen. Every believer should take courage from the fact that the 12 chosen apostles actually needed further enlightenment in regard to the future of the kingdom and that they were indeed given further insight throughout their lives and their ministry. This next slide is, we can see illustrated in Luke 24, a growing understanding of the scriptures. Verse 27 says, And beginning, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 32 says, They asked each other, 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then in verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This evening, you will see the growth of the twelve apostles on full display as they recognize the co-witness of the scriptural record that preceded them and the current witness of the Spirit of Jesus in their present setting. They will put the deeds and the teachings of Jesus as the body of Christ into action as the Spirit of Jesus empowers them to do so. Well, perhaps, or more definite, for sure... It would be best if we took a minute and prayed to our Father that He would open our minds to better understand the scriptures that promise the kingdom of God to Israel and also our role as mysteriously included Gentiles. We want to ask the Spirit of Jesus to help us grasp these events and Peter's sermon in the context that it was originally given and to help us circumcise away centuries of preaching that fails to see what this sermon truly is about. Amen. So, Spencer the Man McLean. Would you pray for us, brother? Let's do it. Mighty God, Lord, would you open your word to us tonight, God? Lord, would you open up your word, open up our minds right now, Lord, that we may understand this revelation, Lord. Lord, we love your word and we exalt your word above everything right now, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we get to come together, Lord. Lord, to hear this word, Lord. Lord, to live out and walk this thing out differently here, God. Lord, I'm asking right now in me, Lord, open up this word in me, Lord. Lord, that it will change the way that we walk. Lord, it will change the way that we teach. It will change the way that we affect other people, Lord. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this night. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well... Pastor Wade, would you do us the honor of reading chapter 2 all the way through verse 41? Amen. Actually, Pastor, if you can read the full chapter all the way through just for context and we'll adjust a range afterwards. Yes, sir. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. 
It's only nine in the morning. Yeah. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Yes. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Yeah, Even right. on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Come on. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel... Listen to this. Mm. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The saints, we want to tell you in advance that we have significantly more material to cover than an average foundation's evening. (laughs) With that in mind, we have several things that the vast majority of you have never considered before. 
much less explored to this extent. That's right. So we're going to move at a brisk pace, but a deliberate pace. And we're asking that you do your very best to remove all distractions, stay exactly with us, because we don't have time to repeat concepts that are building blocks. We'll have to cover them one by one and keep moving to reach them all. Can you work with us tonight? Yes. Can we do this together? Yes. Pastor Parsons is going to kick us off. Okay, so we are going to get into the line-by-line -line study, but we need to do two things first. The first thing is we want you to know that the chapter division separating chapter 2 from 3 is not inspired. Yeah. It seems to us that a more natural division would have been near Acts 2.41. For that reason, we are going to treat Acts 2.1 through 2.41 as our text tonight. This will allow us to cover Acts 2.42 through Acts 3.26 as a singular connected concept next week. The reason that we are doing this will become apparent to most of you by the end of the evening. For the rest of you, it will surely become clear after next week's lesson. <laughs> the second thing. The second thing that we want to do in order to ensure continuity of the text is to explain the setting that tonight's events are occurring in prior to getting into the line-by-line -line discussion. So as Pastor said, we're going to begin to set the setting. We're going to read Acts 1.13 together, and then we're going to deal with an assumption that is not correct, but is typical. <laughs> Acts 1.13. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Acts 1.13 describes a room that is upstairs and that the apostles were meeting in. Most people assume that this upper room is the location where chapter 2 takes place. This assumption is just that, an assumption, and it does not fit very well with it, the text or the context of the surrounding history in Acts chapter 2. So let's continue on to Acts 1.15 as we're building our context. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering about 120. So Acts 1.15 makes it very clear that these upper room events where Matthias is chosen as the 12th apostle are taking place over a period of time. It says in those days. Yeah. This time period is at least 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the feast of Shavuot. The idea that they stayed only in the upper room is a giant assumption yeah. and seems directly contradicted in the events of chapter 2. Remember, Luke is summarizing key events years after the original occurrence. Right. And he probably didn't find it necessary to explain the exact movements of all 120 people on every one of the many days that began in the upper room. Just as he did not name every person present, but only informed you of the key individuals that were pertinent to the narrative. Mm. Thus we get to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So to start with, Acts 2 is speaking of the setting when Pentecost came, and not necessarily the exact setting of their original gathering. Next, Luke simply says they were all together in one place. He does not say 
they were all together in the same place, as he mentioned earlier, nor does he call it the upper room. Let's hear verse 2. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. While they were together in this one place, verse 2 says that the whole house was filled. Again, there is no reason to believe that this location is the same location as the upper room. Most likely, this is the temple or a private residence very near the temple. This will become clear as you go through chapter 2 and see Peter addressing all the men of Israel who were certainly not gathered in an upper room. So here's what the UBS commentary says regarding the translation. Look at our next slide, UBS commentary. The house in which the believers were meeting may either have been a private house or else a part of the temple. There's no way to make a definite decision in as much as the word may refer to either. You may find it persuasive that Second Chronicles uses the exact word in the LXX to refer to the temple. Hmm. And additionally, the writings of Josephus do as well. So here is Second Chronicles, chapter 5, verse 13, in the LES, which is the Lexham English Septuagint. Oh, come on. There was one sound with the trumpeting, and with the singing, and with the one voice crying out to acknowledge and praise the Lord. And they raised a sound with the trumpets, and with cymbals, and with instruments for songs. And they said, Acknowledge the Lord, that He is good, that His mercy is forever. Then the house was filled with a cloud of the glory of the Lord. Yeah. Since you need to make the connection, the word for house in both Acts and Second Chronicles 5.13 is the exact same Greek language. Mm. The setting in Second Chronicles can be no other place other than the temple. It is reasonable then to see the believers in Acts that are said to all be in one place, as in the temple, or at the very least a residence adjacent to the temple. Where it really becomes clear is in the phrase, filled the whole house. Yeah. This is the exact way that Chronicles described the glory cloud of God filling the house that was the temple. And Luke seems to be hearing that description in Acts chapter 2. The reason that we have taken the time to show you this in advance of teaching chapter 2 is that the events described beyond the fourth verse do not fit within the normal context of Jewish history unless they are occurring in immediate proximity to the temple. Yeah. All right, so as we pick up in Acts 2.1, the setting that you should be envisioning is the temple area. You guys got that? Yeah. All right, let's have Mr. Linton read Acts 2.1. Mr. Linton. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Mm. So in our introduction, we went out of our way to illustrate to you that this is happening in the temple and not in an upper room. Now we will quickly give you three additional reasons why. From Acts 2.1 through the end of the chapter, no location change is indicated. So every event in chapter 2 should be seen as taking place in the same location. The indicated location must be able to accommodate thousands since 3,000 were saved on this day and there were undoubtedly many more there listening. How do you fill an upper room with 3,000? The text is also going to indicate that it is the third hour, which is the traditional 
morning prayer time at the temple. That's where every Jew would be. Shavuot also is not celebrated in the home on the 50th day. It is celebrated at the place of the Lord's choosing, which is what? The The temple. temple. The temple. Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 11 says this. Lastly, the text of Acts 2, 6 clearly indicates that the crowd heard a sound and gathered to where the apostles already were. The apostles did not go out to them. They gathered to the apostles where they already were and accommodated a lot of people. Are you guys excited about the text tonight yet? Yeah. Yeah. Already learned. That's good. This evening we have a great deal that we are excited to cover with you. But before we continue on, we would like to highlight that the apostles have obeyed the words of Jesus and are waiting all together, or as the literal Greek indicates, in one accord within the confines of Jerusalem. In many ways, these early moments are a picture or a foreshadowing of things to come in Israel's future, as well as within the future of the larger believing community that includes grafted in Gentiles. We will get into that more as we go on in the text, but it is worth noting that the process of following Adonai has always been marked by periods of faithfulness, continuing to do the last thing that was revealed to you. Much of the charismatic community has become obsessed with a new word from God or an exciting change of direction every few years or every few months or even every few days. However, the example of the apostles is of men who stayed on task with the last instructions of Jesus until that task was brought to its completion. We endeavor to emulate that example in every area of our life and our ministry. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our next two verses and begin to examine this magnificent, Mm. extraordinary, and glorious event, the day of Shavuot. Verses 2 and 3. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on Egypt. Okay, so the imagery of what seemed to be tongues of fire is highly provocative. It raises an important question. How do you describe the Holy Spirit? (laughs) I mean, this task is not like describing a zebra with black and white stripes or a businessman like Marlin with suit and tie. Really, how do you describe the Holy Spirit? When Noah got off the ark, it was preceded by a dove that brought him hope concerning the new creation that was tasked with inhabiting. Perhaps that is why three Gospels describe the Holy Spirit descending as or like a dove. Here, Luke uses the same kind of comparison, but this time it is with fire. The phrase, what seemed to be or in some translations as of, as of fire, the imagery is likely the closest thing that Luke could find to compare with the accounts of what happened. But the imagery is also meant to draw your attention to divine manifestations in Israel's history that involved fire. Yeah. Yeah. Such as in Leviticus 9, verse 23. It says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when the people saw it, 
they shouted for joy and fell face down. It would have not escaped anyone's remembrance that the Levitical priesthood was initiated with the display of a divine manifestation of fire. This fire was accompanied by the glory of the Lord that all the people could see in some way. Now at Pentecost, the nation is seeing the divine manifestation of fire on the men responsible for the custodianship of the kingdom that Israel will possess. Again, this was in full view of God's people. All right, let's look at the prophets. 1 Kings 18, 37 through 38. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then fire, the fire of the Lord, fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Now it would not have escaped anyone's remembrance that the great prophet Elijah also called the nation to repentance with the divine manifestation of what? Fire! fire. Now at Pentecost, the nation is seeing the divine manifestation of fire on the men responsible for leading Israel. What is even more amazing is that Peter and the 11 other leaders are going to call their Jewish brothers to repentance, just as the prophets had done in years past. Come on. Well, that brings us to the writings. 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, he is good. His love endures yeah. forever. Amen. Yeah. You can see that in the law, the prophets, and the writings. The divine manifestation of fire was affirmation on the leading men of Israel, showing his acceptance. More than that, the people responded to this as the glory of the Lord in their midst, a manifestation of it. The events in the description in Acts 2 clearly display the affirmation of Adonai on these new leaders of Israel. Amen. And better yet, the chapter shows the response of the Jewish people at the end of a forthcoming sermon. So one of the things that is going to make this evening special is that it is not just a Levite, a prophet, or the temple that is receiving this divine manifestation. The 12 Jewish apostles are seen to have received this infilling. And then... The message that is preached makes it clear that every person in the nation will have the opportunity for the same infilling. This ought to remind you of the Exodus account of the entire nation being led by another kind of divine fire. This, this is in Exodus 13, 21 through 22. It says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So in the most ancient times of Israel's history, they had been led by a visible manifestation of fire that took them from slavery and bondage to the promised land. Now their descendants are being led again 
by new leaders that have a divine manifestation of fire attesting to their leadership, just like the origins of their nation. So last week we began to examine some of the historical backdrop for this moment in Acts 2. Let's begin by reviewing a slide that summarizes the Exodus event. Check this out. The historical backdrop to the Acts 2 Pentecost. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Guys, look at these points underneath the passage. This event in Exodus 19 occurred on Pentecost or Shavuot, just like Acts chapter 2 occurred on Pentecost or Shavuot. In this event, there was a mixed multitude that was present to see the results of the event. You can see that back in Exodus 12, 38, that a mixed multitude came out. Evidence was seen in the lightning, the cloud, and the fire. Where else was fire present? In our chapter tonight in Acts 2. Evidence was heard in the thunder, the trumpet blasts, and the voice of God. We're going to hear some other things in Acts chapter 2 tonight. This was a theophany where the people had a personal encounter with God, much like Acts chapter 2. Revelation was given through the word of God and the spirit of God, just like our chapter tonight. Exodus 19 was the empowerment needed to both remain the distinct people of God and to conquer new territory. Amen. So many years later, after the Sinai event, David would go on to write about Sinai as the sanctuary of God because of these events that took place in Exodus 19. Let's look at Psalm 68, verse 17 together. It says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand. Thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. When the event happened at Sinai, there of course wasn't a temple yet. However, the psalmist describes Sinai becoming or being enveloped in the sanctuary. The Lord has always displayed His divine interactions with His people through the metaphor or even the reality, the tangible reality of fire. This is emblematic of the building location or even the people becoming the dwelling of God on earth. The connections between the Exodus event and Acts 2 event go on far beyond what we have listed right now. And they start to show the same stamp of God's divine hand. Put simply, the same God who authored the Exodus event is upon the apostles in Acts 2 and he is with them in Acts 2. Since Sinai occurred before there was a physical temple, we will move forward in time to when the physical temple stood on earth. You want to move forward in time with us? Let's go. Let's review some of the historical backdrop from the Chronicles event, which took place within the newly established Solomonic Temple, 
And this slide will summarize some of the major connections. The historical backdrop to the Acts 2 Pentecost. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures, endures forever. Well, let's look at some of the similarities. Here in Chronicles, we have 120 priests that were present sounding trumpets. We saw that in 2 Chronicles 5.12. The men present joined in unison as with one voice and in one accord, or you could say ehad. Just to help me you make the connection, in Acts 1 we had how many in an upper room praying? 120. And what were they in? All joined together in one accord. One accord. One accord. One accord. Right, let's keep moving forward. Evidence was seen as fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This was a theophany where the people had a personal encounter with God, just like the Acts event. This event from 2 Chronicles was empowerment to build and advance the kingdom of God on earth, just like in the book of Acts. So the connections between the Chronicles event and the Acts 2 event go far beyond what we've listed, just like with Exodus. But they do serve to show the same stamp of Adonai's divine hand. Now listen carefully. The Acts 2 event was empowerment to both enter new lands while remaining a distinct people and to build the kingdom of God on earth. Come on. The beautiful difference between the Exodus slash Chronicles event and Acts 2 is that the temple that is being filled with empowerment well, it's not a location or a physical building, but instead it is the very temple that is the body of Christ on earth. Amen. The body of Christ, subsequent to this clothing and power, would serve as a mobile temple of sorts, bringing the spirit of Jesus everywhere they went, even unto all nations. We have a few passages that we want to visit with you and expound on the subject of the mobile temple that is the body of Christ. Now remember, what we're describing is that like Chronicles, the temple is being filled. And we are saying that in Acts 2, where is this event happening? At the temple. At the temple. But the point is much greater. The body of Christ is being filled with the Spirit. John 2, 18 through 21 says, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, in whom the Spirit of Jesus dwelt perfectly, referred to himself as a temple that would be destroyed and then Raised again. Subsequent to this to the destruction of his temple and the resurrection of his temple, he spoke to the disciples about their coming empowerment through the Spirit. We are going to go ahead and just tell you that there is a connection between the Spirit of Jesus 
and the indwelling believers experience that makes them collectively into the temple of God or the housing for his resurrection power. If Jesus was resurrected by his own spirit and his body was a temple, what does that make you who is filled with the spirit of Jesus? You are the temple. Let's go on to the Apostle Paul's commentary on the body of Christ as the temple of God. This is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The Torah in Deuteronomy 12.11, as well as many other passages, make it explicitly clear that Adonai has chosen one specific place as sacred, that being Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Jerusalem and the Temple Mount will indeed remain sacred through the age to come. However, Habakkuk 2.14 says that the desire of the Lord is for the knowledge of his glory to fill the whole earth. This necessitates that his presence be manifested and present in many locations all at the same time. Paul makes the astounding claim that through the indwelling of the spirit of holiness, the collective body of Christ serves as the temple of God. This imagery is beautiful when you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In a spiritual and a very literal sense, Jesus and the knowledge of the glory of God are being extended into all the earth through us. The body of Christ. As we, like a mobile temple, are sent out into the nations. The church, us. We are like embassies. We're like sovereign locations located within foreign territories where the kingdom of God actually reigns. Romans 14, 17 says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we, as empowered by the Spirit, are to embody and enforce this kingdom of God. But more than that, we are to share the kingdom of God with the rest of the world. It is our job as the body of Christ indwelt and empowered by the spirit of Jesus to increase and proclaim the knowledge of his glorious character on earth. Amen. Let's look at Paul's words to the church of Ephesus as he expounds on the foundation that we have received and the spiritual building that we are rising to become. This is Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now there is a tangible reality that we already are the temple of God and that we already are within the kingdom of God at our inclusion in Christ. While both the kingdom of God and our status as the temple of God are a current reality, we have as of yet to reach the ultimate fulfillment and the fullest manifestation of these things. That's true. We are being built into the temple and we are advancing 
the kingdom of God. Amen. So saints, to put it simply, we're in a time of transition between the initiation of these things and their ultimate fulfillment. However, time is coming at the return of Christ when our bodies, which are the temple, will suddenly and fully be glorified. Hallelujah. This will take place at the same time that the kingdom of God is suddenly and fully manifested upon the earth. Amen. The foundation of the kingdom of God and of the temple, that is, the believing body of Christ, is found in the work of Jesus, the living, breathing, embodiment of the law and the prophets, as well as his twelve chosen Jewish apostles, just as Ephesians said. We are currently building on their work, and it is our job to complete what they started by bringing the gospel back to Jerusalem. In a sense, we must bring the temple that is the body of Christ back to Jerusalem, yeah. where it was founded and where it will continue to be led from. Amen. Peter in his epistles goes on to expound on the building process that we experience as the temple or the housing of God's spirit of holiness. This is found in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, the living stone, mm -hmm. rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, Amen. you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter's description of us is that we are collectively the temple of God. This description in his letter even goes on to say that we are a royal priesthood just as Exodus 19 promised the Jewish nation on the day of Pentecost. Notice that Peter does not say that we are the temples of God. But instead, it says that we are being built into a house and a priesthood. This is because what was only available to mankind in one location and through one priestly family line has now been made available to the world through many living stones, yeah. all individually housing the Spirit of God, but collectively making up one unified temple. Amen. Adonai has spread us throughout the earth as embassies and ambassadors, Amen. granting access to the knowledge of God so that all who would call upon his name can worship together in one accord. We are many stones, but we collectively form one house and one priesthood. Adonai has seen fit to multiply his temple from one location alone to many so that men may have the opportunity to call out to him. Okay. To be clear, the need for us to understand that we have a collective purpose and vision has never been more apparent. Yeah. We are setting up Adonai's temple in every location that he sends us as a part of the larger whole that makes up the temple and the holy priesthood. Look, now that you've mastered that, we're going to move on to verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? There's some really interesting possibilities that we came across in our studies. There's a real question as to whether 12 apostles had something like divine fire manifest upon them, 
and began speaking in other tongues, or about 120 people had something like divine fire manifest upon them and began speaking in other tongues. This debate comes from a variety of the- theological backgrounds, each with their own axe to grind, and is argued largely based on what they think the implications might be. But you know us. We're not trying to support or defend ingrained theological positions, are we? No. no. So we earnestly, say earnestly. Earnestly. We earnestly look into the major question. It relates to pronouns and their nearest antecedents, we all, which we all know what that is, right? The nearest noun that the pronouns are referring to. So all of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. This does not tell you who the them is. That is the question. Yes. It is possible that the term them refers to the 12 apostles alone. That would mean that as the newly formed government of God's kingdom on earth, this, this visible display was an endorsement of their leadership, oh, wow. the 12 apostles. It would also explain why the crowd says, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans. Galileans. Oh. You know why? It's a lot. If, if I have a group of 120 people, it's very difficult for me to say that all of you are Galileans, yeah. unless I know you. It's a lot easier to think of that as 12 people. On the other hand, although less likely, it is possible that the term them is about the 120 people. This would mean that the early community of men and women all experienced the visible endorsement and the statement are not all these men who are speaking Galileans was a hyperbole, meaning that the majority were Galileans. So we took the text of Acts 1 through 2 and began with the very first pronoun, making an effort to trace each pronoun's usage to its antecedent. The result was that the overwhelming number of references in Acts 1 through 2 can only be assigned to the apostles. Oh. Yeah. It seems most likely to us that it was the apostles who cast lots and the apostles who were gathered in the Acts 2 account, but it's not certain. We considered presenting our findings based on each pronoun and its antecedent, but not only is the analysis complex, it is also ultimately uh, it involves an interpretation. So we're not going to do it. But we will say that the mention of the believers being about 120 in number is probably just to let you know that the selection of Matthias was done in an open community and not behind closed doors. That's good. It seems to us that it is the 12 in view during this chapter tonight. So we have a slide for you that we came across well after we began our own analysis, and I'm going to walk you through it. It is a question of whether only the 12 spoke in tongues or all 120. Several factors support the idea of only the 12 being involved in this phenomenon. The first factor, they are all referred to as Galileans, which not only shows up in Acts 2-7, but also in Acts 1-11, where the two men referred to the apostles as Galileans. The second reason, Peter stood up with the 11 in Acts 2-14, not the 120. The third reason, the nearest antecedent of they in verse 1 of our chapter tonight, uh, of they in Acts 2-1, is the apostles in Acts 1-26. 
That's not our analysis. They're saying that the pronouns refer to the apostles in the very first verse of Acts 2. However, a problem with this view is that the number of languages listed in Acts 2, 9 through 11 is more than 12. But one apostle could have spoken more than one language in sequence. Still, it is possible that all 120 spoke in tongues. Since the majority of them were from Galilee, they could have been called Galileans. The reference to the 12 would have indicated that they were leaders of the 120. Presenting both sides of the argument, the three reasons they think the 12 is the right answer, but the one problem that they have. We found the BK work comforting to our personal prevailing opinion. However, the assertion that they make about the number of languages being presented as a problem if only 12 men were speaking in tongues, well, in our view, this falls short actually comprehending the text itself. Yeah. Our next slide will help you with that. So take a look at these two verses on the slide. We have Acts 2.6 and Acts 2.8. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Verse 8 says, Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? It seems apparent that the event of Pentecost involved a plurality of people speaking in tongues with every individual hearer discerning the group in his own language. Now, whatever your views are regarding the 120 or the 12 being present at this event, and whether the miracle was in the speaking unknown language as an individual to an individual hearer, or a plurality of tongue speakers being heard by an individual in their own language, it is important that you approach the text honestly and without predetermined points of view that skew your findings. While you're thinking about what Trister just said, regardless of what your view is, if you can strip yourself away of predetermined findings and actually engage with the text, then we had a good day. But I want to emphasize something in a little clearer fashion. That slide does not say that they heard some or one of the men in the group speaking their language. It says that they heard them collectively, whatever the group is, and each individual man heard it in his language. The miracle is in there here. So we, as of this now six-man team, are fully persuaded that 12 apostles are being endorsed with fire from heaven and that they spoke in tongues in the hearing of a very large crowd. Within that crowd, individuals are represented as hearing them plurally in his own individual language. So they're hearing the collective group speaking in tongues and what they hear, the miracle in their hearing, was their own language. We view the miracle as being present in the aspect of the supernatural gift of tongues being understood by believing Jews in their own individual tongues. This is the gift of tongues. They are understanding. They are getting interpretation by the Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is for all believers, just as the Great Commission is for all believers. Amen. However, it seems to us from the scriptural record that both began with the apostles and then were taught to us. By faith, we experience the same things that they did as the foundation of all that would follow them. So with that said, let's reread Acts 2, 4 through 7, 
with verse 8 this time so that we can regain our momentum. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? You guys have already seen that the Levites were affirmed with fire from heaven. Mm -hmm. yeah. Additionally, the prophets were affirmed with fire from heaven. Yes. And of course, the Solomonic Temple was affirmed with fire from heaven. In light of these facts, as we move forward this evening, we want to reinstate several things. Listen to this. One of the things that is going to make this evening special is that it is not just a Levite, a prophet, or the temple that is receiving this divine manifestation. The twelve Jewish apostles are seen to have received this infilling. And then, the message that is preached makes it clear that every person in the nation will have the opportunity for that infilling. Come on. One of the most beautiful things that is happening in the miracle of the hearing that we have described at Pentecost is that it represents a reversal of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, the people were unified in rebellion to Adonai. And he confused their tongues. Yeah. But now at Pentecost, the new Jewish leadership is in one accord, in Ichad. And the people are again being unified in that the believers in the crowd are hearing praises of Adonai in their own dialect. This is the opposite of what you would call confusion. Yeah. It is coordination to take the nations back from rebellious spiritual powers. The Pentecost event in Israel ensured that every nation under heaven would have a Jewish believer in Yeshua that just saw fire from heaven on the twelve apostles. And they also heard them speaking in tongues, but heard it in their own language. This constituted the seeding of the nations with all that Israel was built to accomplish. So whereas the tower, in the Tower of Babel, God dispersed the people, yeah. here at Pentecost, He starts gathering them. Bring it back. Let's turn to Psalms 82, and let me refresh your memory on the 14-hour celestial power teaching yeah. as Adonai retakes the nations and uses Israel to do it. Yeah. Psalms 82, verses 1, starting in verse 1, says... God presides in the assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Yeah. We clearly can go through that lengthy teaching now, but it seems that Adonai assigned the 70 nations of Genesis 10 to spiritual powers within his council. We refer to those powers as archons, which is Greek for rulers. That keeps us from having to go back through the teaching of Benaiha Elohim, or sons of God in Hebrew. These archons did not represent Adonai in a manner that pleased him. So Psalms 82 is his declaration that he will hold him accountable for their mismanagement wow. of the nations. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing verse 2, it says, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. 
maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High God, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Come on. Come on. So the culmination of the celestial power teaching was that Israel belonged to the Lord and was not a part of those 70 nations. Yeah. In fact, the text represents Adonai calling Israel into existence from Genesis 12 <laughs> forward. So this would mean that Adonai created a people for himself alone, separate, holy, and then used that people group to go take back the nations from those rebellious archons. This is a startling background to the events of Pentecost when you consider that the spirit of Adonai is now indwelling members of his chosen nation. Consider this map and think of it as the invasion. Say invasion. Invasion. The invasion of foreign nations that the seeding of Adonai's chosen people within the enemy's territory. Yeah. You remember this slide, the Seleucid geography and Pentecost. <laughs> now, we're not going to go back through the teaching of Daniel and why we're focused on the Seleucid geography. It's enough to say that the nations represented as having been seeded by Israelis that experienced Pentecost are all within the biblical world map and stretch into the 70 nations that were held captive by enemy archons. The Great Commission is, in many ways, a follow-through on a declaration of war with rebellious spiritual powers. Those who carry out the Great Commission are in the service of Adonai, in the reigning of the nations, back from celestial powers that have now been disarmed. We're going to reflect on a commentary from Andrew Gabriel Roth. The events of Pentecost are a reversal of the effects from the events that precipitated the Tower of Babel. You guys see this next slide? This is his commentary on Acts 2. What we do know is that tongues was the universal remedy to the confusion of language at Babel or Babylon. You can see that in Genesis 11.9. To learn the language of the Spirit that unifies all souls in righteousness. Come on, come on. The point being that the dispersion and the division that was created in Genesis 11, well, it's healed when we're all filled with the same spiritual language. That's not to say that everyone is going to constantly have the miracle of hearing going on, but that we're unified by the same spirit and a language that transcends man's understanding. Now, at this point, I'd like to point out to you Psalm 2, verse 8 is also on this topic. Ask of me. And I will make the nation to your inheritance, the end of the earth, your possession. We're going to keep moving in the text tonight, but the Bible in many ways is the story of the creation of Israel and then the retaking of the 70 nations yes. through the medium of Israel under the leadership of their king Amen. and Messiah. Right. So Brother Linton, if you can get us to verse 9 and Acts 2 and go through 11. Parthians, Medes, and Edomites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pavia and Asia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
So it's beautiful to see that Luke mentions no less than 15 nations present at Pentecost. Furthermore, we want to point out the fact that every man there was either a Jew or a convert to Judaism. That's a good point. There are no Gentiles in view here. Now, those who understood the apostles, they heard them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. This was, however, not the case with everyone there. In fact, the text, the text clearly indicates in the coming verses that some of them did not understand the 12 apostles. Yeah. So this means they weren't actually speaking Arabic. They were speaking in tongues. Yeah. And then the miracle of hearing, they were understanding in their own language. That's good. That's good. See, this fact alone illustrates that this supernatural gift was more than simply speaking German, Latin, or French. There are two parties in these verses. Those that understood the man were glorifying God and those that just thought they were drunk because they were hearing tongues. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them saying they had too much wine. We want to state it again for you. <laughs> if the apostles had only been speaking traditional languages... There is no basis for the accusation of the apostles being drunk. The accusation itself is because some of the men present did not understand what the apostles were saying. This probably had to do with the hardness of their own hearts. And they immediately moved to making accusations against the apostles. Never heard that. However, many in the crowd did supernaturally understand what was being said through this gift of tongues. The men in the believing group heard the apostles as if they were speaking the natural dialect of every man in the group. We're about to get into one of the most amazing sermons in history. As we do, we just wanted to point out that Israel has always contained both groups of people. Those who readily respond in repentance and faith, and those who mock. The Lord has consistently purified his nation, and he will do so to the very end, producing a pure bride who will look upon their king and will be saved. Amen. We should pray for this same kind of sifting and purification within the church as well. Because it would be naive to think that both groups are not present within every community right. called yeah. the church. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 14, Mr. Linton. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews yeah. and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. All right. So, is this Peter standing up with who? With the eleven. So how many is Peter plus 11? 12. All right. So there are exactly 12 apostles. And Peter is standing with the other 11. It is silly that we have to say this, but there is a pervasive tendency within our times to make Paul the 12th apostle. And the whole concept is rather obtuse. What you're about to hear Peter do is a perfect example of what happens when a man is clothed with power from on high. This is very encouraging for all of us here. His sermon is as eloquent as it is profoundly deep. He shows a mastery of the prophets and the writings that is exceptional. This is made even more impressive when you realize that he's doing it without the aid of computers, a commentary, 
him in a scroll. This sermon is being given from memory and without notes. Jesus promised that when he, the apostles were clothed with power from on high, they would become witnesses. Yeah. Not just simply participate in witnessing. Man, that's oh, good. They would become witnesses. And Peter is an excellent example of a living witness to the Messiah. Amen. In fact, he's a student that has become like his master. Amen. Uh, verse 15, please These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> So it's worth drawing at least two conclusions from Peter's opening salvo. Oh, yeah. First is that Peter makes no reference to abstinence or not drinking. Amen. That's because Peter was not a member of the Southern Baptist denomination. Hallelujah. What he does, he only appeals to it being too early to be drunk. <laughs> now let's move on to our second point. The second point is more serious and should be considered in reference to our assertion that this is taking place in the temple. Peter says that it is only nine in the morning. So we want you to consider the Jewish prayer services that happen daily at the temple. And we have a uh, slide for you from Mr. Stern. Acts 3.1 is where he's taking this text, but we want you to hear this commentary. According to one Talmudic source, so you can see the reference there, the three prayer services were instituted after the fall of the first temple and replace and replace the sacrifices. You can see Daniel 6:11 for a comparable custom during the Babylonian exile. The three services are called the Shacharit, morning, Minka, afternoon, and that word means gift, gift offering, and the Ma'ari, meaning evening. So 9 a.m. was the Shacharit prayer and amounts to more evidence that this event was happening in the temple location. But for now, we want to dive into one of the more amazing sermons of all time. Oh, yeah. Come on. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So Peter's very first quotation is from Joel, chapter 2, 28-32. This passage begins by declaring the last days and associates it with the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. The passage indicates the closing of the last days period is as beginning indicated by the climactic events in the heavens with the sun and the moon. This is because Peter is not indicating that the prophecy of Joel is completed in Pentecost, but rather that the pouring out of the Spirit indicates the beginning of the last days. Yeah. The last days period and the prophecy of Joel will not be complete until the day of the Lord occurs, otherwise known as the second coming of Christ. Peter understood and proclaimed that what they were seeing at Pentecost was indeed the beginning of pouring out the Spirit on all flesh. In the coming chapters of Acts, you will see that Peter's understanding of this expands to include even Gentiles as proven by the words, all flesh. Amen. As we move forward, you should probably know that the reason Paul can confidently affirm that you can all prophesy yeah. is because of Peter's interpretation of the prophecy in Joel. Yeah. Let's continue on uh, in verse 18. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Oh. 
Peter was likely reflecting on the desires of Moses expressed in the Torah and prophesied through Joel. Remember this statement from Moses in Numbers 11.29. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, Peter is seeing the desire of Moses and the prophecy of Joel coming together and initiated on the day of Pentecost. In Moses' day, 70 elders prophesied. And now in accordance with Joel, men and women are going to be able to do the same and be sent into all 70 biblical nations. Thought you guys might like that. (laughs) We will not get into the differences at this point between the office of the prophets and what is being foretold. But from this point forward, the infilling of the Spirit within the members of Messiah's body will enable all believers to prophesy. Let's pick up in verse 19 and 20. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. The last of the things that Joel foretells and that Peter quotes is the close of the last day's period that culminates in the great and glorious day of the Lord. Amen. This is accompanied by signs in the celestial bodies that did not occur on Pentecost. Peter's point was never that Joel's prophecy was completed, but rather that it had begun. There are many elements that must still occur, like the unification of Israel, the regathering of all the Jews, and of course, the rise of the fourth beastly Gentile empire. The major point that Peter is making is that the period of time has now definitely come, and the initiation point is the outpouring of the Spirit. The time between the initiation of the last days period and the culmination of the last days period is an unknown length of time. The primary focus of this time period is bringing the gospel of the kingdom to every nation. Check out this slide that you guys will be familiar with. You see our magical blue circle on the right of that slide? Around time gap? The time gap on this slide is the period that was initiated at Pentecost and prophesied by the prophet Joel. The primary call to action in the book of Acts is to bring this message of the kingdom to every nation under heaven, every tribe and every tongue on the earth. Look at the last verse that Peter quotes from Joel in verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, that is refreshing, isn't it? Yes! Yes. The outpouring of the Spirit represents the beginning of the last days that will see the nations both flock to the Messiah's kingship and fight against Messiah's kingship. Wow. Let's keep moving on this amazing sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So let's first notice that Peter is addressing the men of Israel, not the men of Judah or any other faction within Israel. 
The newer covenant is about the reunification of all 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. In light of that, we encourage you to go back and review our Jeremiah studies on the book of Consolation. Amen. Next, look at how Peter refuse, refers to Jesus. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Ooh. To the nominal Christian, this appears to be a reference to the location that Jesus was from. But this is entirely off base. If Peter was simply referring to the location of Jesus, then it would be defeating uh, to his point that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah must come from Bethlehem. <laughs> so, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Peter's point is not that Jesus was from Nazareth. The town of Nazareth, from which uh, much of Jesus' ministry proceeded, was the name after Isaiah. Uh, was named after Isaiah 11. So in light of that, let's start with the meaning of Nazareth in the Hebrew language. Come on. So I'm going to talk you through this first slide. He shall be called the Nazarene. What that is saying is that Nazareth, generally supposed to be the Greek form of the Hebrew Netzer, a shoot or sprout. When you hear the word Nazareth, you should think of Isaiah 11, where it derives its name, a shoot or sprout. Again, the Holman Bible Dictionary says Nazareth, a place meaning branch. The town of Nazareth was named after the promise of a shoot or branch that had been promised to the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Matthew 2.23 makes the point that Jesus moved to Nazareth and in accordance with the prophets was called a Nazarene. Yeah. Now at least eight common English Bible translations record Peter as saying something different in Acts 2.22. Instead of saying Jesus of Nazareth, they record Peter as saying Jesus the Nazarene. Ooh, that's good. Well, that's because the Greek does not indicate that Jesus is from Nazareth in Matthew or in Acts, but rather that his title was related to Nazareth. Let us show you the Greek for Acts 2.22. You see over there in the square, Jesus the Nazarene. This is not Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus a Nazarene. This is Jesus the Netzer, the Nazarene. This is because the point that Peter is making is not that Jesus was from Nazareth, but rather that Jesus was the Netzer or the Netzerene or the Netzeret in Hebrew prophesied all the way in Isaiah 11. To better understand the tremendous significance of this title, we got to look at Isaiah 11. So our next slide is some commentary on Isaiah 11, verse 1. Look at this, the word stump. The messianic branch will appear as a shoot from the stump of David. You guys know this. But the terms for shoot, koter, branch, netzed, and root, shoresh, are all messianic terminology. Look at this next part of the slide. Branch, Hebrew, netzed. The Hebrew name for Nazareth is natsad. Do you guys hear the familiarity between those two words? Yeah. Or natsareth. And the term notstri is a Talmudic and modern Hebrew term identifying a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Netzerim. Peter is addressing the men of Israel 
and declaring that Jesus is the Netzer of God. Come on. He is from the household of Jesse and David. He is the one that Isaiah foretold would proceed out of the stump of Jesse. He is the one that Isaiah 11 describes as bringing the world to come into being. Yeah. So Peter then moved to declare that the men of Israel killed the son of David, or the Netzer, by using wicked men to nail him to a tree. He even says that this was done according to God's set purpose and for knowledge, wow. which is mind-blowing. That's crazy. The point that we are making is that Peter was never referring to a location, Nazareth, but rather to the function of Jesus yeah, as yeah. indicated by his title. Yeah. The nation did to him what the prophets had indicated would be done. Wow. However, the nation is still responsible for their actions. The best part is that the Nestor would not just be killed, but the greater emphasis is on the fact that he would spring forth yeah. from the stump of death. Come on. That is Peter's next point, and it is beautiful. Yeah. Let's go. Raise him from the dead. Bring <laughs> him from the agony of death. Because it was impossible wow. for death to keep it all. Oh, come on. Yeah, amen. That's good. So Peter announces Jesus as the netzer that would proceed from the stump of Jesse. To grasp the gravity of this declaration, you need to understand that Judaism, particularly in the first century, had a rich milieu of thought and debate regarding the prophetic passages. The text of Isaiah 11 is clearly in agreement with the promises made to David or about David's physical descendant inheriting the Davidic throne, uniting all Israel and bringing the Gentile nations into submission. The text in Isaiah 11 about a shoot or the netzer from Jesse was, however, not universally understood to be clear about the Messiah experiencing a physical death and resurrection. David's life, in many ways, was the proto-Netzer. Yeah. He was anointed as king by Samuel, and then subsequently spent a long time in exile evading Saul. Right at the point where it looked as if his calling to kingship was dead, God caused it to suddenly spring back to life. Amen. Furthermore, David did unite all Israel and subjugate foreign nations. This led to some confused confusion regarding what aspects of the prophecy in Isaiah 11 should be considered strictly historical as they relate to the life of David, and what aspects of the prophecy should be viewed as having future implications regarding the Messiah, who is David's son. You guys catching this? Yeah. yeah. They're reading the prophetic writings. They, don't, they know this has to do with the Messiah, but they don't know exactly what it looks like. Some looks yep. like exactly what David did, but more... Well, Peter's making the point clear who it was ultimately always aimed at. Many writings from the period do reveal that it was common thought that the Netzer was in fact the Messiah. But the exact details of how this prophecy would unfold were unknown. The scriptural record in the life of the apostles is clear that even after three and a half years of walking with the Netzer himself, their minds had to be open to fully understand what Peter is now boldly proclaiming. So if you're struggling a bit, take courage. <laughs> Peter is going to illustrate why David cannot be the Netzer in verses 25 through 29. As he quotes Psalm 16, he will then demonstrate why these references in Psalm 16 refer to Jesus rather than David. Remember, 
Peter is doing this all from memory. Brother, let's pick up in 25 through 27 so that we can make sure we accomplish this excellent sermon in our time frame. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Man, that's a good word. Yeah. It's always fun to stand up here and teach someone else's sermon. Yeah. <laughs> Notice that the prophecy in Psalm 16 speaks of a man who enters the grave, but is not abandoned to the grave. Come on. While it is possible that this could speak of David's hope in the resurrection, the next line unequivocally eliminates David yeah. from being a contender for this prophecy. Yeah. Verse 27 says, Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Saints, this must have hit like a hammer in the ears of the original audience. Yeah. Peter has just asserted that the men of Israel killed the Netzer. And that David said the Holy One would not see decay. This serves to emphasize the point that if Jesus was raised after three days, then he was the Holy One that did not see decay. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 28 through 29. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently <laughs> that the patriarch David died and was buried. Yeah. And his tomb is here to this day. Amen. Peter's point was clearly understood by his audience. David died and was decaying in a tomb location that was in Jerusalem. However, Jesus did not see decay and had the path of life made known to him. Peter is clearly displaying that Jesus was the Netzer and that David was not. The best part is that he is using David's words to confirm this important truth. If all of that were not enough, every Jew walked into Pentecost with historical associations with two things. The first is the revelation given at Sinai. And the second is that David was thought to have died on the day of Pentecost. Look at our next slide. So this slide is from David Stern. Uh, reading to Acts 2.29. It says, the patriarch David died. And according to Jewish tradition, he died on Shavuot. This comes from the Talmud. As Kephas, Shavuot audience was undoubtedly aware and was buried. The Tanakh said that he was buried in the city of David, southeast of the present western wall. And then also, his tomb is with us to this day. The tomb of David was probably destroyed at the time of the Barcova revolt. However, various sites were suggested by popular traditions over the ages, and one which became generally accepted was the place now called Mount Zion. This tradition is about a thousand years old, first being recorded in Crusader times. You can wow. find that in the Encyclopedia Judaica, chapter 5. So, Peter is preaching. Yeah. Peter is doing a remar remarkable job in, of utilizing both the truth of Scripture and what's already in the minds of his audience in that day. That's a preacher right there. Yeah. Peter is quoting the scripture and expounding on its meaning from memory, proving that Christ is the nexer and that David spoke of him. What Peter says next is earth-shaking. But he was a prophet and knew that new God had promised him on oath 
that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Mm -hmm. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That was not to be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So Peter's point is that David didn't see himself as the Netzer, but instead was a prophet speaking about the Netzer that would come through his descendants. Peter even calls David a prophet, which agrees with 2 Samuel 23.2. Now the larger point is about to be confirmed through Peter and the 11 men that are witnesses of Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension. They're standing together testifying to their brother Israelites about what they personally witnessed. Let's go ahead and get 32 and 33. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So I know all of you walked in here knowing that this was the temple setting. And that all of you walked in here knowing that 12 special apostles received the Holy Spirit as a first fruit of everyone else. And that all of you walked in here knowing that Peter was preaching about the Netzer. With all that you walked in already knowing, I just want to restate Peter's point in verse 32 one more time. Peter is re-emphasizing his original point that Jesus is the Netzer, not David. The Netzer, the one who is killed, but then raised to life. And now he's adding to it the fact that he and the other 11 men standing there right with him are witnesses to these events. They are the witness of his life and resurrection and ascension and of the infilling of the Spirit. Peter's restating his original point because he's setting up for a second point in verse 33. <laughs> yeah. His second point is namely that Jesus was not only raised, but glorified as the King of Israel, and seated at the right hand of the Father. Being glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father has allowed Jesus to pour out the Spirit that was prophesied in the past, and that all in Jerusalem have just seen, evidenced in a powerful sound like a blowing of a violent wind, and a manifestation of the Spirit as of tongues of fire. And a miracle in their own hearing. You remember that Jesus not only promised the twelve the infilling of his spirit, but he also told them that he had to go away before the counselor could come. So briefly, we're going to review a few passages in John that help you understand what is happening here. Okay, so I know we've been teaching for a little while, but you're not going to want to glaze over what we're about to say. You guys ready to hear this? Yes. All right. John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. While Jesus was with the apostles on earth, they had his presence with them every single day. And they had his teaching and instruction to look to. However... Jesus pointed to a greater intimacy with the Spirit that currently resided within Him, but did not yet reside within or inside of the apostles. They were walking with Jesus. The presence of Jesus was next to them, but He was not inside them. They did, however, experience the Spirit within them, 
beginning at the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now let's look at John 14. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. In a cursory reading of this passage, it could be easy to miss the following point. Jesus clearly states that the spirit of holiness already lived with the apostles, but that he would in fact be in them after his ascension to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. This is because Jesus would only pour out the Spirit as the glorified King of Israel. And the Spirit himself would flow from the throne of God as poured down into the apostles. Let's read one more verse from John 7 before we continue. That's good. Right, last verse from John. John 7, verse 37 through 39. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is bold. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Not yet what? Glorified. Come on, so the point is clear. The Spirit would only be poured out from the throne of God by the glorified Messiah and could not be poured out from any earthly man or earthly position. That's good. While Jesus is on earth, he is the body of Christ. So, but when he ascends his glorified, he receives the promise of the Holy Spirit and then pours it on the newly established body of Christ. We really do have more to get to, but to make sure you understand what Carlos just said, as simplistic as it is, can you pour something out unless you're doing it from above the thing you're pouring into? So when Jesus ascended, then he poured down from the throne into his 12 apostles. So Peter is building his case at the manifestation of the spirit of holiness that his audience witness today, that is, that day in Acts 2, could have only come from the glorified Messiah who is seated with the Father. This becomes abundantly clear when you survey passages in the prophets like Ezekiel 39 or Isaiah 44 that portray the Lord as the one who can pour out the Spirit upon Israel. So let's move to the next few passages as Peter begins to expound on Psalms 110. For David did not ascend to heaven, wow. and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So once again, remember that Peter is doing this from memory wow. and without any time of preparation. Oh, yeah. Wow. Pretty impressive. The Hebrew wordplay in Psalm 110, verse 1, is truly astounding. It serves to illustrate that not only can David not be the subject, but that only the Lord can be. And we have a slide that's going to help you visualize this. This is the reverse interlinear. 
Notice the circled Hebrew words. Translated would be, Yahweh said to my Lord. Now it should be apparent to each of you that we have two divine figures at play here. It is not possible for David, who did not ascend into the heavens, to be having this conversation. It is only possible that the divine Messiah, who is the Netzer, having died and been raised, now glorified, is having uh, is the one having this conversation with the Father. Wow. Now notice the text literally says, Yahweh said to my, in a possessive sense, Adonai. This is thanks to the jot or tittle, as Matthew 5.18 says in the King James Version. The small marking being the yod, say yod, yod, which indicates the possessive form. This is letting us know that we have a conversation that can only be taking place between two divine figures, the Father and the Son of God. So Peter is making it clear that Jesus was not only raised as the Netzer, but that he is the Lord of Israel and all mankind. He is now at the Father's right hand, where he will remain until his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Saints, while you're reflecting on that, there is no time to do this concept justice. <laughs> nope. But you should be aware that feet is often a reference to the people of a nation or of a kingdom. If you want to see more on that concept, we taught on it in Daniel 2, and you can revisit it. In Psalm 110, the reference is about Jesus placing his feet mm. on his enemies. Yeah. And the manner in which that is accomplished is through his body on earth, as Romans 16, 20 describes. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The your feet in the passage is the feet of the believing community at Rome. But notice that it is the God of peace who is doing the crushing. In other words, Jesus will put his enemies under his feet by putting them under the feet of the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. This is first and foremost true of Israel in the day that the fourth Gentile beastly empire is destroyed. And of course, it also includes Gentile graftims like Ittai and like us. Hallelujah. So an additional aspect of Peter's usage of Psalm 110 that you should be aware of is that it is not the first time that Peter has heard Psalm 110. Yeah. In fact, Jesus was Peter's Messiah. Jesus was Peter's Lord. Jesus was Peter's Savior. But don't forget that Jesus was also Peter's rabbi. Oh, yeah. Rabbis played the role of both teacher and father in the life of their students. We want to look at the time Peter heard his rabbi utilize Psalm 110. See, we've been saying he's quoting it from memory this entire night. Well, look what he's remembering. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord or Adonai? For he says... Quoting Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Adonai, how can he be a son? 
No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> kind of like what's going on in this room. <laughs> you see, the answer to the scenario we now know is that Jesus is both the son of David, the Netzer, and the divine son of God. But that is not why we are bringing this up. We are bringing this up because Peter watched his rabbi confound the Pharisees Ooh, with this passage come on. to the point where they were afraid to ask him any more questions. This is a little bit like a son who saw their father display absolute dominance in a difficult conversation in the past, and now the son is utilizing the same passage in his difficult conversation when put on the spot with zero notes or zero time to prepare. Peter was not only spirit-filled, but he was also a discipled son. And we know discipled sons can survive. The spirit moved on him to utilize the teaching he had already received from Jesus. In your own time, reread Matthew 16 and consider the revelation that Peter received about Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. You will find that Peter's discipleship in the word is being illuminated by the spirit in Peter's time of need. Man, that'll preach, won't it? So on a last note, before we move to verse 37, Linton, you guys should notice that Peter addresses all Israel, which is an inescapable connotative reference to all 12 tribes. Peter's point is that inasmuch as all Israel is responsible for the death of Jesus, the Netzer, the Lord, and the Savior is also theirs if they will call out to him. Verse 37, Linton. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Oh, come on. So, there are a few things that we want to recognize in this passage. But the first is that as a team, after decades of collective study in Acts chapter 2, there are many new things that we learned this time around. Amen. We are just now beginning to get a better handle on what the original audience understood immediately after hearing Peter's sermon. The Jewish audience did not require slides or hours of traditional or additional explanation to get the point. They clearly understood Peter's message and were what? Cut to the heart. The second thing that we want to grasp is the concept of being cut to the heart. The men of Israel obviously were not indicated that Peter stabbed them in the heart, although he had a reputation for doing something like that. But in a sense, they were sore that is, the word of God, did begin to cut away things from their hearts or the center of their beings that did not belong. This is a Hebrew concept that is often not fully understood in believing Gentile communities. These men are indicating that a cutting process has begun in the center of their beings and that they want to know what to do in order to complete the process. Let's begin exploring this concept starting in Deuteronomy. Amen. You still with us? Yeah. Yes. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm just going to read it again. Yes. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants Amen. so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. The emphasis here is not at all on the sign that is physical circumcision. 
in our text in Acts, as well as Deuteronomy, everyone is already physically circumcised. Yeah. True. But a similar internal process is required as with the external circumcision. Yahweh is prophesying to the people of Israel that he will circumcise their hearts so that they can follow him with all of their hearts yes. and with all of their souls. The point is that Adonai promised that he would do this, and it would, be, it would enable them to live rightly in his will. In light of that, let's move on to the prophets. So did you guys catch that Deuteronomy is both a prophecy and a promise yep. that he would circumcise their hearts? Yep. I'm going to give you two passages to bring this concept together. So Jeremiah 4, as Peyton said in the prophets, beginning in verse 4, says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Yeah. You men of Judah and you people of Jerusalem. Look, the surrounding context of this passage is a prophetic warning to Israel about what will happen if they refuse to be cut to the heart. The phrase that is surrounding this is, do not sow among thorns, break up unplowed ground. All of those can be understood to mean cease doing what is evil and start doing what is good, so righteous deeds. The men in Acts chapter 2 are proclaiming to Peter that they feel the pain of a need for internal and external change. Every time this kind of reference shows up, it is accompanied by actions and deeds. These men indeed feel the connection of God, conviction of God, and are asking, what shall we do? Well, Biblically speaking, there is no internal circumcision of the heart without outward fruit. Amen. And that is exactly what the crowd is asking Peter how to do. Study on the subject in your own home would undoubtedly yield lasting fruit and how you apply the concept of repentance. But since we have more to get to this evening, we're only going to read one last passage, and that is Colossians 2, beginning in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. The Apostle Paul's point is laying out succinctly the concept of being cut to the heart in the full process of being circumcised from a sinful nature. Yeah. To genuinely complete the process of being cut to the heart or to be circumcised in heart, it requires a putting off of the old self and a raising up in the righteous deeds yeah. that come by faith in the resurrection power yeah. of the Netzer. Yeah. The actual imagery of baptism is that you die and are raised in the same way that Jesus the Netzer died and was raised. Yeah. But at this point, it's best that we get to verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, brothers, what shall we do? So although Peter is the one portrayed as speaking, we want you to catch this. The response from the audience is, brothers, what shall we do? That's good. Amen. The audience viewed the 12 as the collective leaders and authority on what should be done in response to this new revelation regarding the Netzer, who is Lord. This is the beginning of the 12 acting as the government of God on earth on behalf of of the 3,000 Israelite men who are coming to believe. 
They preached and saw the beginning of an internal change in these Israelite men. And now they are going to lead them into how they should respond. Verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. As you begin to engage with Peter's words here, you should notice immediately that Peter did not consider being cut to the heart as repentance. Repentance could only come through outward action in response to the internal conviction. So Peter proceeds to tell them to be water baptized as a sign of the inward change. He goes on to tell them that they will then be able to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. While we could speak on this process of action-based repentance, water baptism, and empowerment for literally hours, we would like to focus in on an aspect of the setting that you likely have not given much thought. Let's begin in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, this verse blows your mind. Because it is astounding to think that the fact of salvation promised to come to the Gentiles through Abraham, was this was one of the promises given to Abraham, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, even more when you consider that it was so by faith that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, 16, it says that Paul, Paul says that he was appointed to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering as acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, the blessing of Abraham to the nations. The gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit were always intended to start in Jerusalem and radiate outward. And we can see that in seed form, when Peter says that the promise is for all whom the Lord our God will call, in verse 39, in many ways, looking back at Acts 2, with the commentary of the New Testament epistles, Adonai's divine plan to use Israel to bring the gospels to the rest of the world seems rather obvious. Yeah, to the rest of the world. However... That is not at all what was on the minds of the apostles or the original audience. The 12 Jewish apostles are speaking to a crowd of Israelite men and converts to Judaism. There's not one Gentile even mentioned in the text as being present for these events. The point is not to say that a Gentile could not have been present somewhere in Jerusalem, but instead to say that it is a thoroughly Jewish-centered event. You guys following that? Adonai just affirmed his 12 Jewish apostles with fire from heaven at or within the vicinity of the temple on Shavuot. And the apostles are now sharing the testimony about Jesus as the Messiah, the Netzer, and Lord with all Israel. In the mind of the original audience, those who were far off were Israelites that were still in Diaspora. Chapters like Ezekiel 34, 36, 37, and 39 depict the Spirit of God being poured out in a way that transforms the hearts of Israelite men and causes all of the tribes who are far off to be regathered under one shepherd. 
To be sure, Pentecost was a foreshadowing of these things, and they will come to pass in the events surrounding the day of the Lord. Amen. Now, the common understanding that the Acts 2 event was clearly about the Gentile nations of the world, in the mind of the original audience, was simply not true. They would have had in mind the restoration of Israelites who were far off through the scattering of the diaspora. You see where their mindset is? Mm -hmm. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is for the believing Gentile world in the very same way that salvation is. Yeah. A mysterious inclusion with Israel. Yeah. But never apart from Israel. Amen. This would later be revealed to the apostles as they go through the events of Acts chapters 8 through 15. In fact, Gentiles are being filled with the same spirit of Jesus as the believing Jewish community uh, was ends up being the proof of Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God. Wow. As we get ready to move to verse 40, we think as Charismatics or Pentecostals or whatever title is thrown on us, you hear Acts chapter 2, you're like, yeah, that's our chapter. No, you're not even in the picture until we come close to Acts chapter 8. No one thought of a pork-eating Gentile being filled with the spirit of of holiness, you can see the seed form, but Acts will bring us along a progression in the very thing that proves you are allowed to participate in the kingdom of God is that he chose to fill you with his spirit despite the fact you're not of Jewish origin. That's what helps them come to the right conclusion by the time we reach Acts 15. So as we pick up with our last two verses for the evening and we move to verse 40, Tune your ears in, because there are a few things that I promise you've heard misrepresented a thousand times over the once that you've heard it correctly. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So as we're nearing a close, it is important to understand the context of Peter's admonition. He says, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Israel has a long history of doing well under any strong biblical leader like Joshua, Samuel, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, but falling into depravity under the reigns of men like Jeroboam, Ahab, Manasseh, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and the plenty others. The cycle of the Shoftim demonstrates this principle in the strongest of ways in that Israel does well every time they have a godly leader. But when that leader dies, they slide back into sin. Peter is telling these new Jewish believers to save themselves from the current corrupt Jewish leadership. Not calling all the Jews corrupt. And their corrupting influence toward the people of Israel. We want to show you what we mean in Luke 7, 29-30. Luke 7, 29 says, All the people. All the people. Even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Luke specifies that all the people accepted John the baptizer's message of repentance, including tax collectors. On one hand, the people accepted the message of repentance. On the other hand, the current leadership of Israel did not. Let's keep reading in verse 30. Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Wow. Dang. 
because they had not been baptized by John. So, in the most blunt of ways, the author Luke wants you to know that the problem is not the people, but the leaders. In this case, Pharisees and teachers of the law who have rejected God's purpose for themselves. And Matthew records Jesus commenting on this subject, but in a different setting. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse 11 through 12. As Peyton prepares with Matthew 16, remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, mm -hmm. and that the setting of Acts 2 is the temple. So when he says, save yourself from this corrupt generation, indicating the leaders, who is standing around him watching this? That'll set up Acts 3. So we're in Matthew 16, and with that imagery in mind, listen to the text. How is it you don't understand what I, I, that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread. <laughs> but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now Peter is a disciple of Jesus who now has the Spirit of God reminding him of Jesus' words and illuminating their application. In his warning to the people, he is telling them what Jesus told him. Guard or save yourself from the corrupting influence that is in this generation through its leaders. That's good. Now you remember that Jesus directly addressed this subject with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I'm going to walk you through two familiar slides. Matthew 21, 43, you've heard before, but now you're hearing Peter apply, and you will even more so in chapter 3 and 4 of Acts. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. This, of course, applied to the present Jewish leadership. And they were going to be replaced with Jewish leadership. Peter and the Twelve, as the chosen government of God on earth, are directly warning the people about saving themselves from the corrupting influences in their generation that primarily stem from the existing leadership which is in opposition to what Adonai wants to build on the earth. So Peter and the Twelve is the replacement leadership, or warning the people who are being saved at the temple, hey, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. God is taking the kingdom from them. Do not be corrupted. Now you're going to remember that Jesus directly addressed this subject with his apostles with the authority and the assignment that had now been given to them. This is Luke 22, 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not just an emotional moment where the apostles were promised something in the age to come. This is an assignment that carried the weight of now being responsible for the believing community. And you know what? They now have a rather large believing community. Yeah. Yeah. Now after the death and resurrection of the Netzer, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they are taking full authority Woo. to warn the new believers of the looming threat. Yeah. All of the leaders who are gathered around the temple site and are a corrupting influence whom God has taken the kingdom away from. Wow. Let's look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Come on. Amen. Legions of sermons have been preached about how horrible the Sinai event was because 3,000 died. 
This has been contrasted with how good Pentecost was because 3,000 were saved. Unfortunately, this entirely misses the point that fire falling from Adonai as a testimony to his presence and as affirmation to his leadership was nothing less than a blessing every time that happened. At the Sinai event under Moses, it was a blessing. At the events under the prophets, it was a blessing. Blessing. And with every occurrence within the writings, it was a blessing. blessing. What has happened at Pentecost was a continuation of God's affirmation and grace on the Jewish nation. But in an even bigger way than before. Let's read John 1, 16 through 17 together. John 1, 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Amen. For the law was given through Moses. That was grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That was grace as well. Guys, Acts chapter 2 constitutes a continued and an increasing measure of God's grace being poured out upon the people of God. In the Exodus event, the Levites rose up to stand against those who were not walking in the genuine way and were leading Israel into increasing depravity. The result was that they received an established priesthood for all generations to come. Now in Acts chapter 2, we have God establishing through his 12 apostles and the believing community a new kind of priesthood. A priesthood that has the same affirmation from heaven as in all the times past. We're clearly at the balance of our time tonight. So we would like to close on the words of the Apostle Peter. But much later on in his life at this point, as he reflected on the events of Acts chapter 2. Yeah, so with, with all we've said, we're pretty sure that as Peter wrote this, he was really reflecting on that which happened in Acts 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 9, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Verse 8, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. As they stumble because they do they disobey the message, which is also what they, they were destined for. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, Amen. a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, with a purpose that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. Pastors. Come on, stand to your feet with us tonight.
Did anybody learn anything tonight about Acts chapter 2? Did anybody have the scriptures open up to their mind through the power of the Spirit tonight about Acts chapter 2? So what do we do with this? What action are we supposed to get from this tonight? Because you know our brothers, and as much as our minds may be blown in the moment, the goal of all this is to move us towards action. That the Spirit of God might illuminate His principles to us. And even in the passage that you just heard, we ended with you are a chosen people. Who is this primarily spoken to? Israel. Israel. See, it doesn't make it less important for us to understand God's plan. The chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's special possession, a nation that he designed and wanted to build for himself to address all the celestial authorities that are there. What is the beautiful part about this? We get to be included with this. We get to have our directions, our actions directed by our older big brother Israel that has shown us what this is all about. Our inclusion does not make it less about them. It actually should cause more of a love for them. It should motivate us that what they are is what we've been included into and drive us to spirit-filled actions every single day of our lives. To be empowered like Peter, who is preaching one of the most phenomenal sermons ever. Did anybody learn a little bit about that sermon being even better than what you thought? Realizing how much more deep it was than what we thought? He was pointing people towards having their hearts cut. They were cut to the heart, but that wasn't the repentance. They were cut to the heart, but they still needed to repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before I turn it over to Pastor Matt, I just want to encourage us. May we not be people who are just cut to the heart. I'm doing that in air quotes here for the recording. Oh, man, that moved me, Pastor. That Man, you got me right here. That's not repentance. That's not being filled with the Spirit. That's not the action that God has for you. That's merely what the Word of God does is it's beginning to move upon you and circumcise you internally that you might then get to repentance, that you might then get to actions. Church, may we not be people who are constantly having our hearts cut, but never move beyond that into the action of repentance, into the action of empowerment in everything we do. This is one of the many things that we can take tonight, is that may we be more than cut to the heart. May we be empowered with the same spirit that God had for his people, and may our actions show it in everything that we do. Amen. One additional thing I'd like to add starts by asking you a question. Who in this room is empowered by the Spirit of Jesus that was poured out on the day of Pentecost? Yeah. That means that you have been empowered to be His representative, 
and a participant in his royal priesthood. Whenever you do not accept actionless repentance in your life, you know what in turn that causes outwardly? You do not accept actionless repentance in other people's lives. That as a priest, you can hear somebody repeat the very words that they were cut to the heart. But you do not let that equate to the repentance that God is requiring of us. You take them by the hand as Peter and the eleven did. And you lead them to the actions of repentance. Who baptized these guys? The newly established leadership of Israel. That's what we get to participate in. Well, I couldn't see behind me if any of these men raised their hands when I asked who is empowered by the same spirit of Jesus, but I bet all of them did. I think tonight it would be right and fitting and a blessing to us if Carlos prayed to quote the Father of glory, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for your spirit of holiness. Father, we thank you for the empowerment to become witnesses. Father, to live for you and die for you. Father, to be the invaders of this earth, Father. To take your kingdom like the ambassadors that we are everywhere that we go. Father, we thank you because you have established righteousness, peace, and joy in your spirit within us. So I ask you, Father, that we all, like flames, like with flames of fire upon our heads, would witness, would become the witnesses that you have called us to be, Father. That we would go out, Father, and proclaim your word by what we do and then by what we teach, Father. In the name of Yeshua, I ask you, Father, that you bring us in unity, in that homotumatu, Father, that we would actually thank you to the nations as one man, as the one body of Messiah that we are, Father. We love you, and we love what you're doing in our people, Father. We bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen.